0: Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time.
1: I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your
0: podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft
1: Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is
0: Amanda Shires. The Grammy winner, who was named Emerging Artist of the Year for 2017 at the Americana Honors and Awards, joins us in a moment to chat about her work alongside Brandy Carlisle, Natalie Hemby, and Marin Morris in the supergroup The High Women, her creative relationship with husband and 400-unit bandmate Jason Isbell, and what she's learned about songwriting over the years that helped her shape a truly original and iconoclastic new holiday album. Part one. Well, Paul, you have been chomping at the bit. For me to watch the Beatles get back documentary, which has yeah. is, is been out for a few weeks now. Um, but my wife was out of town this weekend, so I had a chance to finally dive in. And uh, I think there is a lot to say from a songwriting perspective.
1: Wow. Yeah, I'm glad you finally dove in because there's nothing sadder than a grown man just begging his friend to watch something on TV. <laughs> like just texting, have you watched it? Have you watched it? Right, which you did do. Which I did, yeah. um, man. There's so much to get into just from any kind of perspective. Right. It's like climbing in a time machine and being there with these guys. Yeah. From a songwriting perspective, I don't think that I can overstate the magic of watching these guys not only come up with these songs, but refine them. Yeah. I I mean, it hit me on every level as a writer. You you, you get a chance to watch Paul McCartney come up with the, the genesis, the very first spark of an idea for Get Back. That part was, I have to confess that the first half
0: of the first episode was a little slow for me um, because you're just watching these guys noodle around. And in in a way, that's kind of the point. I mean, they're kind of trying to capture the aimlessness and the frustration of trying to get off the ground with uh, this get back. You know, they're going to do a a concert film. They're going to write and record these songs. They're going to make an album. It's a pretty ambitious thing to walk into with basically zero plan. Um, And I definitely felt that kind of frustration yeah. but when he sat down and almost just sort of like grabs his bass in an agitated way like we need songs <laughs> and he just starts first of all he's doing it on bass right which is interesting and he just starts kind of like flailing away at his bass and he's going like jojo was the first thing it's like jojo and he's singing and,
1: sounds yes yeah. and you hear that melody there it is yeah that's it there it is yeah it just appears. Yeah. I mean, we've all been in that moment of an, of an idea popping up. Right. And it's a magical moment. You don't always recognize when you've got something good. Yeah. You know, sometimes you think you do and you don't and whatever. The other moments, the tedious moments are really interesting as well because you're watching this thinking, hey, when are you guys going to turn into the Beatles? When are you going to like jump at the phone booth?" and open up your shirts to reveal the <laughs> Beatles logo and just take over the world with these songs. Right. Because at first they seem a little pedestrian at times. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. They're just these jams with kind of half formed lyrics. Yep. And it's it's surprising to me to watch the Beatles be so human yeah as musicians just kind of like not quite getting there
0: yeah and one thing that we've talked about with several guests i remember uh we even talked about this on the last episode with steve perry um the idea of writing songs and singing kind of syllable sounds just and and you see paul do that several times in this documentary where he just starts he he's just making sounds right. and he's got a rhythmic thing going with how the lyrics kind of fall and he knows what the vowel sounds are that he wants. And then he starts kind of fleshing it out. But even hearing him go, you know, Jojo Jackson left his home in Arizona become yeah. Jojo left his home yeah. in Tucson. Like it's... It's a. It's not much of a difference, really, but it like it also is all the difference. But it's a huge difference, yeah.
1: <laughs> and and it's amazing how kind of offhand they are with these lyrics, when because to us they've become this sort of canon, right? And at the time it's like ah, they could go either way with it, and they just sort of throw out whatever comes into their head, and that sort of easygoing nature about it all. You, obviously, they're feeling the pressure of coming up with something, but they're also just kind of coming in and and jamming, eating toast. <laughs> and playing cover songs and just doing whatever pops in their heads and I'm I'm sitting there thinking guys you have 2 weeks right D- you want to get busy and like you know focus <laughs> hey. a little bit and what's crazy about this is, is if you look at the way the beatles made records even up to this point going in there with no ideas and 2 weeks to make a record that wasn't new to them right Right. And that's how they made uh, Rubber Soul. Yeah. And so I'm sure they walked in and said, no, it'll happen. Yeah. It's yeah. already, it happens. It always happens. Well, I think that frustration that you felt uh, was
0: basically what George felt uh, <laughs> and and wound up, you know, quitting and, and walking out and they had to kind of woo him back. But what was interesting to me is I felt like John somewhat and Paul more so were a little dismissive of of George and, and a little bit harsh, you know, about some of his songs. But then I realized that's how they were with each other. Like yeah. John and Paul had a very shorthand, like, Oh, you can do better that you can, you can beat that line. You know, they, right. they felt no need to sugarcoat anything. They had that kind of songwriting partnership shorthand, um, where they could just go, nah, that's not good. Right. Um, and you know, something like that sounds harsh if you don't have that camaraderie. And I think at first I was like, hey, they're being a little harsh to, to George. And I was like, hey, but no more harsh than they are with each other. Right. Um, but George also hadn't really proven himself yet. You know, we haven't heard, you know, here comes the sun and and something were, were yet to be, you know, he'd done while my guitar gently weeps, he'd done tax man, which is an okay song, but George wasn't fully George yet. And Mm. he was definitely more sensitive, I think, than those two guys were. Um, and I thought, you know, in some ways they were being a little bit, callous toward him but also i'm like wow they're really callous toward each other they're just comfortable with that dynamic
1: and in a way george kind of grew up as a songwriter in the shadow of these giants around him you know he first kind of learned how to write a song by trying to submit songs to beatles records right (laughs) that's (laughs) a heck of a way to learn so i i would imagine that even before this part of the process you saw george kind of fighting for attention fighting and i have to say you know, for a lot of guys, you'd be in a band like that, and you're like, look, I'm playing lead guitar with two of the greatest songwriters in the history of the world. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm just going to lay back. <laughs> right. Collect the checks. Yeah. You know, there's lots of girls, lots of drugs for me. It's all good, you know. <laughs> right. But George, he was like, no, I have I have something I want to say. Right. I have songs that I want to contribute. And, you know, props to him for sort of pushing through that. Yeah. Because we wouldn't have something. We wouldn't have Here Comes the Sun. We, we wouldn't have the All Things Must Pass record. Right. All the things he did as a solo artist. So... I'm sure it was a tough slog but you know he he kept pushing and, and got it done and it's an interesting
0: question to think about would we have had George Harrison you know without the Beatles and I don't think we would which is an interesting mm. thing to say because I'm not saying that um, Paul and and John deserve all the credit for George's talent because that's in no way right. true um because they didn't mentor him I didn't get the sense that they were ever like hey let me help you with this let me let me encourage you <laughs> in that you <laughs> right. know but he just, soaked up everything that they were doing and had a front row seat and he chose to soak that up and then kind of rise to the challenge. Um, it probably would have been very easy for him to just keep that to himself because I'm sure there was a certain level of vulnerability to come out and go, Hey guys, I got some songs too. Yeah. Uh, when you're dealing with like one of the greatest songwriting teams in the history of the world. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. I, I so I, I, give John and Paul a lot of credit for uh, inspiring george but no credit for mentoring him <laughs> right right and uh and i give george a lot of credit for just sort of having the courage and the uh dedication to just apply his talent and get better i mean he of all the of all i mean i think that throughout the course of the beatles they all got better but perhaps no one more so than george
1: right i would agree with that you know i've heard uh, a number of people refer to this documentary as a game changer and i would have to say that it's it's True for me as well. I, I didn't think that something could come along that would change the way I listened to the Beatles. Hmm. And this has, because this sort of window into the process and what it took to make these records, realizing that this was their process throughout and their their sort of, you know, the way they related to one another. Um and it's enhanced it. Yeah. It hasn't taken anything away where I watch and go, oh, now it's a drag. <laughs> it's actually more fun to me now to yeah. to realize all you know these four magical pieces that came together to make this band, they worked together pretty incredibly. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's it's also interesting to me to watch how much their lives changed in such a short amount of time. And mm. when you think about the songwriting, Paul makes a comment in there that um, you know when they were on tour, he and John roomed together, and they woke up about the same time every day. These guys were just together all the time, and even though uh John was married I think Paul was still kind of the primary relationship in his life I mean he was obviously not romantically but like that was the person that he spent the most time with that was the person that he was living kind of on the road with they were writing songs they were bouncing just the proximity of always being together meant anytime you had a song idea pop in your head there's the other guy you're bouncing it off each other and you find them at this point in a new place in their lives where John is Yoko is, is now John's primary yeah. person in his life. That is the most important relationship uh, at at this point. And they're not on tour anymore. They made the decision not to tour to be a recording band. So you don't have the proximity of being together to, to bounce ideas off each other. And you see these two entities really become two separate entities mm-hmm. and, and still helping shape things with each other in the studio. But it's, it's a much stronger line between you know John's songs and Paul's songs right, by that point sure. than what you had in the beginning so you even see just the way that the 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 decision not to tour the change in personal relationships the impact
1: of fame it
0: really had an impact on the process you know and you get a real window into that
1: well and I think you know the record before the white album, from what I understand, was very much just guys coming in on their own a lot and they weren't even there together for a lot of the process. So, you know, this was even kind of a a closer return to collaboration Mm -hmm. than what we'd seen on the White Album. Yeah. And yet it was still far from what they would have known in the early days, you know, rooming together and stuff. I want to do some, I I want to count to three. And at the end of the three count, I want us to both say at the same time, who each of, whose legacy do you think benefits the most from this documentary?
0: Okay. Whose legacy. Yeah. All right.
1: One, two, three. Yoko. Billy Preston. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Billy for sure yeah. is a hero right. of this documentary. He
0: saves the day. when Before he comes, everything is unfocused and meandering. As soon as he gets there, everybody buckles down and turns back into a pro.
1: Yeah, and gets in a way better mood. Yeah. And by the way, Don't Let Me Down was not really something yet. And then when Billy starts playing... Oh, there you go. There's there's your song. Yeah, Um, but I agree with you about Yoko. (laughs) (laughs) Yoko's legacy and sort of the story about the the role that she played in the whole thing definitely benefits, I think, from this from this particular treatment because she doesn't look like any kind of villain to me.
0: Right. Yeah. She's just there. She's just hanging out. Yeah. uh, And there has been this narrative for years, and it's it's eroded some, you know, in the last few years. But you know, I remember kind of growing up with just the assumption like, yeah, Yoko broke up the Beatles. Right. And uh, you don't see that here. Um, You know, I think that she was, I think John's decision to have her there all the time was a little intrusive. If anybody's to be blamed, you know, it's, it's more John than, than Yoko. Um, But yeah, like you don't see, I don't see any of that um, narrative at play at all here.
1: And I'll say this after high school, it's generally not cool to bring your significant other to band practice. <laughs> to work. Yeah, to, to work. <laughs> um, you know, in high school, it's like, yeah, you guys are all playing in the garage somewhere right. and the girlfriends are hanging out and whatever. And, and I say significant others because, I mean, it does, not just females. I mean, if you're like in the Bangles or the Go-Go's, right. Right. if you brought your boyfriend, it probably would have, you know. Yeah.
0: yeah, don't say hame. Go with more of
1: the, the exactly. timely references. <laughs> 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 totally. <laughs> um, so I, I, I get it how it kind of may kill the vibe you know kill the vibe in some ways but at the same time she wasn't there like wrecking stuff. She yeah. wasn't like shutting down run throughs of songs to say, no, 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 try it like this. You know, Paul, you play
0: guitar on this. But she wasn't doing any of that kind and of if, stuff. And if, if she hadn't been there, John wouldn't have been there. So That's she was true. probably the stabilizing force. I I, I did see, uh, I can't remember if it was an article or something that somebody posted on social media, but I saw something that said, uh, We all owe Yoko an apology. Yeah, we probably do.
1: <laughs> Although I, I will say, sometimes I watched it and I thought, do you, you don't have anything to do, do you? Like There's <laughs> there's no point in which you're like, I can be here till four and then I have to blank. Like yeah, there's I none saw, of that.
0: I saw someone say it's like watching a knitting ghost. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of always there, but not intrusive.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I've never even thought of a knitting ghost. But that <laughs> right. is, is pretty much what it is. Well, uh, I just want to say you know, thank you for watching it because I feel like a little part of my life is complete because, and I'm, I'm sure we'll
0: be talking about this more.
1: Yeah. Um, maybe on the podcast, let's make this our part one. Every time (laughs) we'll talk about the Beatles documentary. (laughs) You guys are fine with that, right? It's just a running commentary. They didn't say anything. (laughs) Sounds like everybody's cool with it. Hearing
0: no objections. Uh, I think we can move forward. Um, Well, we've got a a great interview today with Amanda Shires, who has is is kind of an Americana hero. I mean, she's from from playing uh, with Jason Isbell in the 400 unit to the high women, to her own work, uh, incredible side person, but also incredible singer, songwriter, um, and definitely has come up with a a holiday album that is I would describe as iconoclastic and off kilter. Uh, It is not your run of the mill holiday record and um you know she she had some some really interesting insights about songwriting and and how she approached that project
1: yeah she goes through kind of the whole gamut of emotions and experiences uh, in the holiday season um and she took us through all of them in yes. the conversation
0: she absolutely did it is uh she is a delight and uh fantastic conversation so here we are at the end of 2021 wow. um this is uh our second of two holiday themed episodes this year so we want to thank everybody for uh for listening and uh for all the messages we get from you guys telling us how much you enjoy the show and how much you appreciate what we do um another another good year in the books paul yep uh good work thank you well done I appreciate that. We'll bring you back next year, I think. Awesome. Part two. Singer, songwriter, fiddle player, and Americana hero Amanda Shires has released eight albums as a solo artist, in addition to her work as a member of both Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit and the supergroup The High Women, alongside Brandi Carlisle, Natalie Hemby, and Marin Morris. The Grammy winner was named Texas Music Magazine's Artist of the Year in 2012 and was named Emerging Artist of the Year for 2017 at the Americana Honors and Awards. The Lone Star State native launched her career playing fiddle with the Texas Playboys before going on to tour with Billy Joe Shaver and others. At Shaver's suggestion, she eventually relocated to Nashville to pursue songwriting. While getting established, she worked as a side musician with Justin Towns Earl before joining Jason Isbell's band, The 400 Unit. Shires and Isbell married in 2013 in a ceremony officiated by past Songcraft guest Todd Snyder. Amanda was featured on Luke Combs' 2020 single, Without You, and is currently getting attention for her unorthodox holiday album called For Christmas, which features nine original songs, a cover of What Are You Doing New Year's Eve, and a reworking of Silent Night with all-new lyrics. Amanda, welcome to Songcraft.
2: I mean, I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, we're glad to have you. Um, <laughs> you've got uh, a new record called "For Christmas." Um, nine of the songs are originals, which is an unusual thing for a Christmas record. How
2: come Silent Night's not original? I changed all the words.
0: Well, that's true. That's true. So you've got <laughs> nine and a half original yeah, songs. There we go. <laughs> um, but the record's interesting to me because it, it's kind of a mix of nostalgia with realism. It's got, you know, some humor. It's got a bit of cynicism. It's got sadness. Um... Probably uh, kind of an unorthodox take on the idea of uh, a holiday album, but really kind of sets out to capture all the emotions that come with the holidays and not just the Hallmark romanticized uh, version of Christmas. Uh, Would love to hear a bit about how you approached writing this record and and why you kind of took uh, a different road than what a lot of people might do for a holiday record.
2: I took a different road for a lot of different reasons. I guess I um before I was uh, before I made this record and before last year, like I think right after Christmas last year, I started thinking about you know coming out of the cave of COVID and what Christmas would look like next year, which is this year. And um, I personally really enjoyed Christmas at home with very few people, just you know two of us. And um, I thought, what's that mean for next year? Okay, so we're going to have to do the shopping thing again. We're going to have to listen to the shopping people music and the radio, and <laughs> all that shopping music on it. That like, And I just, that was kind of like the spark, I guess, for it. And um, But also last Christmas sort of made me appreciate Christmas more, I think, because growing up, with divorced folks, there was a lot that came with Christmas as far as like, um, whose house you're going to be at this year and why, where do I feel the most comfortable and wh- where do I, where, what is Christmas? And, um, hmm. something about last year, just being at the house and not making any kind of fuss and not being, you know, sort of, uh, encouraged or like go along with it like every other year it just got me thinking and i thought you know what next year i'm gonna have an awesome christmas like this one but i'd also like there to be songs that are are the experience of christmas of what it is for me and probably like what it is for a lot of other folks you
1: you know you you mentioned the shopping people music which is a that's that's a pretty apt way to describe the way we encounter christmas music from year to year Um, I personally grew up, uh, a couple favorites in my house were the Elvis Presley Christmas record, um, and the Mario Lanza Christmas album. (laughs) Um, I wonder, did you have any, uh, Christmas albums growing up that, that, uh, that kind of stuck in your mind and not that you were trying to repeat them at all, but that, that sort of gave you a spark. Uh, in terms of what Christmas music meant to you, that
2: Elvis one is killer. Um, my my favorite was the um, and still is is the Vince Giraldi Trio, yeah, or the peanuts one. Um, I think I think because it's uh, it leaves a lot to the imagination. I think mm-hmm. if you're just listening to it, you know, and it feels wintry and not necessarily straight up Christmassy. Yeah. And um, I wanted to keep that part of of the music I enjoyed, you know, Burrow lives is cool. But, um, so that's where, I, that's why I, I made this one more piano heavy. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. You hear that on a song like home to me, uh, it's got that melancholy piano driven ballad thing that, that almost is somewhat reminiscent of Christmas time is here from the Vince Guaraldi record. You know, it's got a little bit of that same, uh, vibe. You can hear some of the, um, you know some of that influence but it's definitely doesn't sound like something off that record you can you can really tell where you've kind of taken a strand of inspiration and made that um something of your own
2: you said there's eyes on the runway eyes on the wings there's eyes everywhere so nothing can bring you home
0: Talk a bit about that song specifically.
2: Okay, I will. But first I have a question. Vince Giraldi, Vince Giraldi, Vince Girardelli chocolate. <laughs> How are we going to pronounce this, this name? I, I don't know why I can't do it.
0: Um, I've always gone with Giraldi, but uh, I'm wrong about most things.
2: Giraldi, Giraldi sounds Easier and Gerald yeah. sounds like you're trying to say Geraldo instead of Geraldo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the brushes on the snare are too loud on that record for me to even think about how to pronounce his name. I'm, I'm just <laughs> all I hear is the swirling brushes on that. On that oh, so, hey,
2: what speakers are you on? Uh,
1: you know, they're blown.
2: Oh you think no! To do with it? <laughs> <laughs> um, Home to me is a, a, like a couple of songs on this record that don't talk anything about Christmas, but kind of. Um, Invoke the wintry spirit. Now, this is is actually a, a plea, a desperate plea for somebody to come home.
1: Which is, it almost seems like it's the other side of "I'll be home for Christmas."
2: Right, right, right. I mean, you nailed it. And also with the waltz, which is, um you know how waltzes go. There's there's a
1: partnership required to waltz, really. Yeah, they always say it takes two to tango, but I think you might be changing the whole thing now. <laughs> takes two I to walk waltz
2: by myself, but it looks kind of silly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, you know, as Scott pointed out before, most Christmas albums are just laden with covers, um, and and you were more selective. You know, a song like "What Are You Doing New Year's Eve," which I think is an underappreciated song from the from the canon. What what was sort of your criteria when it came to choosing a cover?
2: Songs that you don't have to that you don't hear. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't want to. I don't like that's part of the reason um, for wanting to to show a different experience, because I myself have heard enough of so many. I mean, I I hate to yuck on somebody else's yum with the Christmas songs, but (laughs) I really don't want to hear Santa Baby one more time. And I don't want to hear Let It Snow. I don't know why. I just don't want to hear that. And if I sing it, then, well, I wouldn't sing it but um the criteria was um i wanted to have allusions to the christmas music and allusions to the 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 hymn the hymns and the and the you know spiritual element and that's why i chose piano and you know background singers like the mccrary sisters but i wanted to make sure that that i wasn't just singing something somebody had done a million bazillion times because that's not very meaningful to me like i'm not really a cover artist but um uh, what are do you doing? New Year's is always the song I look forward to most because I, w- I, I was a bomb bug, but now I'm not. And it's also the part where it's like romantic and po- potentially um, uh, rewarding in the um, let's get it on, you know, potential. <laughs>
0: right.
2: <laughs> and that's always fun. Maybe it's my.
0: You talk about, you know, some of those old songs like Santa Baby that we've, you know, heard a gazillion times. Um, You know, to me, your song Gone for Christmas is kind of an update on the the Santa Baby concept, all the things that that I want for Christmas, but then it's got, you know, the twist of, you know, I want you gone. I
2: want a massage.
0: When you were writing these things, did you have some of those songs like Santa Baby in in the back of your mind of like how to update and put new spins on some of those older concepts? Or were you more just kind of writing from your own experience without worrying about the Christmas canon that came before?
2: Well, see, I think that all those songs that you're talking about, they they were um, in my psyche or unconscious and in my... you know my my vitriol towards them um sort of drove this record and um I think that uh, it was a matter of synthesizing it all because I've had these complaints about Christmas songs, and I kept them close, but I didn't do it like a column right like where you write you've got one set of words here and then try to write it do it like that. <laughs> right. I just kind of kept right. the the idea or the the thesis together and tried to um do my best with it and um you know love is good and fun and there's good love songs on there and happy newness songs and sad songs and uh just wanting to leave you know it's just it's just all the feelings you're right you already you already nailed it
0: well let's talk a bit about your uh your background and you i understand were Uh, As a teenager, uh, playing with the Texas Playboys, famously uh, coming from the lineage of of Bob Will's band, Um, and I find that in and of itself, you know, completely fascinating, Um, but would love to hear... A bit about, as somebody who grew up and and really mastered the fiddle as your first instrument, um, a lot of songwriters, you know, it's piano, guitar, uh, that's kind of the typical story. Um, but having come to music as a fiddle player, um, I'd love to hear how that sensibility or that particular instrument influenced the way that you think about melody, the way that you approach, uh, the craft of writing in a way that might be a bit different from people who started out on different instruments.
2: That that's a good, that's a good one. Um, with the, the fiddle being such a, well, solely melodic instrument, you can do some rhythm, not, not any, anybody would like, you can't really back up a band with the, with the fiddle, you know what I mean? But it's a lead (laughs) instrument. And, um, melody you know melody everything so i basically just write melodies and then figure out the rhythm later um which is cool i think because you don't get married to really any any kind of rhythm you can experiment and also you can always add more measures because if it's a, if it's the melody and you're playing you know you got a couple of measures of the of a, of a you can always extend it or subtract it and um before even he put the drums to it. So that that's that's kind of why a lot of my songs have various measure links that are different than your your regular uh, songwriters <laughs> with the, with the <laughs> guitars playing, you know.
1: right. You put out a solo album, your first solo album called Being Brave, which was mostly instrumentals. Um, that,
2: that record is an artist record. Um, I made that one. I was still a side person in Texas, you know, I was playing with the Playboys and folks like Gary P Nunn and uh my favorite Billy Joe Shaver and you know Michael Martin Murphy anybody that would hire me I would play in their band, you know. And um the Playboys what they used to do is they would make little CDs of their instrumentals and they would sell it next to the acts CDs so that would supplement their income. And I thought that was a great idea. And so it's kind of also like a business card in a way because it shows what you can do on instruments. You know, I played the fiddle on this and I sang some harmony on this and I can sing some lead if you need me to. I could play the mandolin, you know, if I need to. Yeah. And um, so that's what that was all about. It was It was a, a way to supplement the income and show what I could do as a side person. Now, when I did that to Billy Joe Shaver, I didn't ask first because I didn't know you're supposed to ask. And um, Oops. after the show, he said, what is this? And I said, <laughs> I said, well, that's my fiddle. That's my fiddling, you know, like I do every night. And um, he said, oh, oh, okay. I guess I'm going to have to listen to that right uh, before you put it out. And I said, it's, it's too late. It's already been out for a few nights. Then the next day we got in the car and it was already scary enough riding around with Billy Joe because, um, because he was billy joe and <laughs> he had two of those things that monitor for cops the radar yeah. things The or, fuzz buster? Yeah, <laughs> yeah one on top of the other and he he drove fast and you know if he if he felt like something was wrong he did he had no problem telling you so he's like it's time to listen to that fiddle record and i was like oh great and then, <laughs> yeah, we started putting it on and instrumentals instrumentals in them um, He said, is there going to be any of them with you singing? And I was like, yeah. He said, what songs are they going to be? I said, I didn't want to pay royalties, so I just made a couple up. And um, after that, it got real quiet after the record played. And he said, "Uh, I think you should go be a songwriter in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, I think you'd do really well with that. And I said, I don't want you to fire me. I love this job. And and, um, I said, I I really want to keep playing the fiddle. He said, you should really go do that. So I thought I was getting fired. but I wasn't. And then a year later I told Billy Joe that I was going to Nashville to become a songwriter. Wow. (laughs) And um, that's what I did. So that's, that's where the line separates because it's a whole lot harder to um, start over and be a songwriter and make songs and make records and try to find places to play and people that'll let you play than it is to go Play in a side, be a side person in somebody's band, and just sling your CD up next to it for extra fifteen dollars.
1: Wow. right, I mean, Tommy. Th- thank God that you had CDs you were putting on the table out there, and not just a box of sweatshirts that wouldn't have done anything <laughs> for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, when
0: you first headed to Nashville, um, did you have the idea in your mind from the from the get-go that you wanted to be the artist who was singing these songs because there are a lot of people who go to Nashville with the idea of I'm going to be a writer for other people to to sing um was that kind of in your mind or did you always know I'm I'm going to be the artist who is delivering the songs that I write
2: when I first moved to town I was so such a greenhorn I didn't even know I thought artist meant like the artist is the person that sings and makes up the songs and the songwriter is a songwriter. You know, I didn't know that you could be an artist that doesn't write songs. I I was, I was kind of confused about all that, but, um, the whole time I did know that I was going to write my own songs and sing them just like, you know, Billy Joe Shaver did, or, you know, Towns Van Zandt or whoever, you know, Willie Nelson and, um, if somebody wanted to sing it, they could go ahead and sing it. But, you know, that's what I was going to do. I didn't really understand the other part of there's a whole other part where people just write songs until I got here and started waiting tables and trying to figure out how to record.
1: And and how did you manage, you know, most people, I would say when they come to a town like Nashville or New York or L.A., you know, you've got that that time period where you know what you've got. You know what the world can hear from you, but the world has not yet opened its doors. You know, on one hand, you've got the advice of Billy Joe Shaver, and you can rest on that and say, well, this guy thinks I can do it. Mm-hmm. But I would assume that you also have to have a certain amount of just inner drive, uh, inner belief in yourself. Um, how did you kind of manage that as you got to know the town and the industry?
2: I, when I moved here, you know, part of the reason I moved is because I couldn't really make the... Uh, the transition very well in Texas. Cause I was known as a side person. Like I'd call folks and be like, can I open a show for you? Like what? You're playing the fiddle. And like, so, okay. So I was like, I'll just, I'm going to have to just do what Billy Joe said and start over. So when I moved here in my mind and in, in practice, I said, I'm only going to play as a side person for people I can learn from. And, and for people that will also allow me to do that, knowing that my goal is to, record my own songs and sing my own songs. And um, you know, I'd I'd already known Jason, but he didn't live here in Nashville that at that time and we were friends for a long time first. But it was at Jason's show that I met um, my friend Justin Towns Earl and um, you know, went and did tours and made records with him. And um that's kind of that's kind of the the way that I got to know the town was with Justin. And um The way that I got to know a lot of different folks, and then hear his take on how to do it and all that business. Um, In
0: 2011, you released an album called Carrying Lightning, and uh, there's a song on that record called When You Need a Train, It Never Comes. And it's a clever song, but also a dark song.
2: I was dreaming I was tied to a train track Twisting in the sun Burning up, hoping the trains hadn't quit rolling I was ready for it to be done But when you need a train, it never comes
0: It's always fascinating to me when something is both kind of clever and a little funny and also dark and kind of hopeless at the same time, which is a a difficult uh, way to write and and effectively do it. Um, I'd love to hear a bit about, uh, you know, we know about your your background as a um, as a fiddle player and how that kind of influenced your approach to writing melody but I'd love to get a sense of who some of your influences were in terms of lyrical sensibility.
2: Cindy Walker was, was my first uh, venture into falling in love with writing. Um, She wrote quite a bit with, uh, for the and with the Texas playboys and Bing Crosby and, um, and um, that song, you don't know me so good. And then I would say folks like Todd Snyder and, um, Richard Buckner, you know, all these kind of uh, unsung heroes, I guess. And then always admired Billy Joe Shaver's writing and all your, all the ones that you would normally go to Tom Petty and all that. And I didn't, I didn't really have a, a sense of very many women songwriters because I didn't really see that growing up. That's something I saw more and more as I've lived here and as, as time's gone on and um, same with side players, the, first side player I ever saw that was a woman was Bobby Nelson. And, uh, and then, you know, as time goes on, there's more and more room for all that. So most of my influences are men, but that's just because that's what the world was showing me. And um, yeah, so it was easy for me to, to, to hear other folks' trained song and be okay writing my own because uh, the world looks a little different to me through my eyes uh because i am a girl (laughs) so it's already gonna be different it's not like i'm Mm -hmm. ripping anybody off except for i do have
0: balls
1: (laughs) (laughs) um you know looking through you know we've all uh, everyone's bio kind of reads like a highlight reel right and you see an album this year and an album that year and in between it all i see this this interesting note about you beginning to attend Swanee, the University of the South. And you just spoke about, you know, only playing along with people you could learn from. So obviously learning and continued learning is a big part of, of who you are. Um, I would think that anytime I got into a situation where someone questioned a lyric, then I could say, well, I'm the one with the Masters of Fine Arts and Poetry, so leave me alone. Um, <laughs> Is there any sense in which, you know, do you look at your writing and say, okay, this is how I wrote before that education, and now this is how I write after that education?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I didn't include Leonard Cohen on that big list because I thought that, um, you know, that was probably in the bio, but just so you know, I didn't feel good about that, and I have to tell you, Leonard Cohen is my hero.
1: I'm glad you did.
2: (laughs) And um, so before (laughs) I went to school, you know, I feel like the purpose... I, you know what, we're supposed to do when we're making art is try and figure out what the hell the purpose of life is. And um, uh, well, I guess we are. I don't think we're supposed to walk around in it and just live yeah. blindly, but <laughs> keep coming back to things that grow and birds and stuff. And I, I really think it's just to grow and to learn. And so um, I'm a curious person. I'm going to keep learning. So when I do go to write songs, I have reasons now for making word choices. And, um, y- you know, you can, you can not have any reasons and go on instinct, but, and you can get lucky, but sometimes it really does tighten the whole thing up a whole lot to, to, to actually look at, you, you know, the, the, the source size a word and, and say, oh, those don't work because they color the, the statement this way, or these do even prepositions. Mm-hmm. And, um, before i would i would sit there and fuss with the with the damn preposition for sometimes 2 hours and um, now afterwards i know i have a better handle on on um the feeling i'm trying to describe in in the images that i want to go along with that and i can do it a little quicker mm-hmm. and i also don't say that the song's done immediately when i'm finished with it and i think that's because y- when you're writing you get a little bit close to stuff and um so I put it away a little while and then go back to it and edit it again and um that I mean that's just those are some things that I do um, then I also like going to that school um my professor Andrew Hudgens I can still hear his voice in my head sometimes saying that's 10 pounds of shit in the five pound bag and um, (laughs) you know there's like the you know oh good another cliche you need to flip around somehow or have you tried writing a new metaphor
0: <laughs> Wow!
2: yeah it's just and it's the those kind of things like where you learn quickly and you learn from people that have mastered in in like mastery beyond me that um when you learn it in that kind of a of a, of a tough way it really sticks with you and um and I got what I paid for because uh, I try real hard not to to do do any of those things and to think hard about what I'm doing and and I think it makes me better and um, and uh, I don't know I, I I really am more proud of what I'm doing now than I was before and that's the whole goal.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: And I like being able to call out lines and 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 I'm being right when I say your if your body is like a back road you probably need to get surgery.
1: <laughs> yeah, let's get that thing back to being a wonderland. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, you know, I listen to uh, songs of yours like Deep Dark Below, which has this kind of eerie, atmospheric, almost kind of Daniel Lanois-esque guitar thing happening that, you know, creates a certain... Mood uh, to the song or, or a song like My Love, The Storm from your My Piece of Land record where, you know, the fiddle is almost like a third voice on the recording um, and speaks in a way uh, almost as much as you as the singer speak in that song.
2: I am the storm
0: All these are um, sort of, uh, I guess what you would call arrangement and production type of choices, uh, which may or may not be part of songwriting, you know, depending on who you talk to. I'm curious if for you, as you're writing songs, are you kind of hearing production in your head? Or when you write, do you kind of focus on, you know, the melody and the lyrics and then, getting into the studio is a whole separate process of bringing that to life in terms of the sonics.
2: I can hear uh, a lot of times I can hear what, what it is as I get to it. Um, a, a basic sketch and I don't like to, to create the whole thing. Um, like come in with this finished like idea as far as, um, arrangements and, and what parts people play. And I know that's because I come from being a side person first. And um, the people you pick to play with you are experienced on their instruments. And, And, you know, I hated it when people would hire me to do session work and they're trying to get me to play a part that my instrument's tuned in fifths. That's damn near impossible what you're asking, but I'll give it a whirl. But because I write on fiddle, and i do a lot of melody stuff i can hear the fiddle parts you know and i and i'm going to go with those and and i also worked real hard on making the kind of the wind or the the what people call the the darker parts of the the sound of that instrument like um like what you're describing on those songs and and songs like on jason's um traveling alone that kind of like the like you can al- almost make it sound like semi-truck brakes or or kind of like that harmonic whistly thing. I don't know hmm. what the term would be called for it. Or I've played it long enough that I can make it sound like a voice if it needs to, or it hmm. can sound, you know, irritated, <laughs> pink and irritated, <laughs> <laughs> or it can sound, um, you know, atmospheric. And I think that just helps with creating the tone and the setting in the mood of the song a lot. And, um, and it, it can color where words can't, you know,
1: as someone who's never played the fiddle is, is a lot of that tone control, which hand is, is controlling that? Or is it, is it bow placement? What, what is it that you do to, to shape your tone?
2: It's a lot to do with the bow, like pressure and where you're the, the, on the fiddle bow one side's wood and one side's horsehair, and um and obviously it's bowed so it'll work against the fiddle but um there's the the pressure and the balance are different as you go because the 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 where your hand holds the bow is heavier than the top where it's lighter so you can do it by by that balance and the, all these things are like variables you can change one thing and get a different thing and then where you how much hair you have on the string versus not Mm. you know you can bow it with your fiddle stick part but sounds real crazy unless you've got a good amplifier and um uh, (laughs) or a whammy pedal and um, then (laughs) then you you, then you got the pressure and then you've got the speed and then on the other side you've got um how hard you hold the strings down and if you don't hold them down, you can get those harmonic things and then you can add pressure. And then that's what the vibrato comes from the left hand where you're holding the strings. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a lot of ways you can experiment and get different sounds with it in all the way to how much rosin you put on the bow and you, wow. what kind of strings you're using and, um, hmm and have you cleaned the rosin off your fiddle i don't often do that because i need that rosin to be stuck on there mm.
1: huh <laughs> wow in in nearly 200 episodes of this podcast that's the first time that we've asked a question that technical about a musical instrument i think and you answered it quite well and i feel like maybe i could just go do it now
2: <laughs> oh totally i mean if, if you if you if you, want to, you can. Um, and there's a lot of good teachers and I'm telling you, YouTube's a good place to learn how to do things. That's how I kind of started learning how to play the ukulele.
1: All I need's a good like 25 years probably.
2: <laughs> yeah. It doesn't take that. It, all it takes is like that thing that I don't have for going to the gym. <laughs> 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 that like, you got to go do this thing every day for a few minutes. I don't want to do that. Right. I want to, but I want it to be the end of that part.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> um. I, hey, I want to ask you about one specific song. Uh, it's a song on uh, Jason's album, The Nashville Sound, uh, called Anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and first of all, I just want to say you're completely in my brain on that song. I, I don't think I've ever seen a more uh, on point description of how anxiety feels. You're lying in the bed, you're surrounded with beautiful things, and all you can think about is losing them. Mm-hmm.
2: Dustin the-
1: Wife and child still sleeping deep enough to dream. I know. Was there something cathartic about writing a song like that? Because I feel like if I was able to put it into words that well, that I might sleep a little better the next day.
2: Well, there is. And then there's also that thing that goes with having anxiety, which is that you didn't get it all in. (laughs) So you're like, I feel like I need to write like two more, like to fully describe stuff like that. But um, uh, it is. and And then it isn't because that's the nature of it. Yeah, just that specific one for other songs. Yeah, it's very cathartic.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, it's hard to uproot anxiety.
2: Yeah, for sure. And then, and if you if you have it, then you're definitely you've got it about that song. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Uh, it's interesting to me that the majority of the. Um, songs on your albums are written solo, and the majority of Jason's songs, whether they're on his solo albums or the albums with the 400 unit, tend to be written solo by him. There's, you know, obviously a handful of songs that we've heard, um, you know, between projects, Anxiety being one of them, that, that you guys collaborated on. Um, but it's interesting to think about, Uh, two songwriters kind of sharing life, sharing a house, um, but tending to more work independently when it comes to uh, the writing. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that dynamic and how you guys kind of settled into what works for you, both being songwriters who both tend to kind of operate independently from one another.
2: We, you know, we we operate a lot differently than, than the writers in Nashville do because you, all you have to do is be in the room to get credit in there. (laughs) (laughs) But we have a thing where we trust each other. And we, when the, when it comes to songwriting, we know that there's nothing influencing what we're saying. Like we won't ever, when it comes to writing, take some old baggage or something into the, argument about it or not. you know, it's just for the in the service of the song, this is a person I trust the most to look at it and tell me if they see anything wrong with it. Hmm. And we do that and um, for each other like you know, I'll look at all the songs and then basically I just ask questions because that's the thing when you're writing that's hard is is to know if what you're presenting is going to be interpreted the way you're hoping. And um, we do a lot of that for each other. Or if we get stuck on something, we'll ask, like, what way should this go or something? But that's never, like, a writing credit. We think writing credit is when you actually contribute, like, you know, more than just, like, a couple of words. Like, you know, because if you're saying something like um, the sky was, I don't know, whatever the sky was, gray and black and gloomy I don't know and then the other person says but was it really I think it was more of like what you're trying to say is this like that doesn't count as credit to us especially if you're just trying to help somebody get stuck or you have a problem with something like tone shifts like if a character's getting out of character for the character um, those kind of things are like discussion type editing type things we call it Um, and obviously we're um, we allow each other to do whatever the hell we want, but it, it's really, it's a it's a it's a luxury to have have somebody that understands the goal and the intention um, nearby, you know, and 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 somebody that's good at it. So we we lean on each other pretty pretty hard when it comes to that. Like every song of his, I look at, and every song of mine, he looks at.
1: You know, it's it's interesting. You know, just looking at your story and thinking of the number of. Uh, the number of voices that contribute to, to the, you know, the way you work, you were talking about hearing the voice in your head of your poetry teacher, (laughs) Um, the voice of Billy Joe Shaver, giving you that encouragement saying, you know, go do this. And you got Jason there. You, you toured with John Prine. I mean, you, you've been surrounded with people that have great, great insight. And then at a certain point comes the ears of the audience. Um, Who do you think is the toughest audience for the songs you write? Is it, is it Jason? Is it, your own voice in the back of your head—is it that? Is it that finance teacher, or is it the audience themselves?
2: Uh, it's myself, <laughs> hmm. my own audience.
1: <laughs> yeah, the the internal voice. I
2: try to write a song by myself. It's like going to the dentist, and um, <laughs> and then you sit there playing it, and then you 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 look at the words, and you are like, God, you should just wad that up, start over. <laughs> and then um, I think it's myself, and then after that. It'd be. It's definitely myself. I'm not really scared of anybody else. No. I hate the sound of my own voice. Did you know that? Like I'm, i that's the hardest <sighs> audience is me. Like you get you get in the hotel room next to me and hear me writing a song catarwan and oh my god, I'm so embarrassing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably good that you write on fiddle then because you can like
1: you make all kinds of racket. Yeah. You know, a lot of people seem to like it though. Racket. <laughs> <laughs> your voice oh well, well
2: i mean i wonder what's wrong with their ears sometimes just kidding I'm glad <laughs> people like it but you do you ever i guess you do since you're doing um this show but you hear your voice back and you're like that's what i sound like
1: oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> i'm more offended by scott's voice than my own though <laughs> <That's
0: awesome>. <laughs> <laughs> um so, yeah, I just wanted to, to kind of touch on the idea that that you have, you know, done a lot of different things. And, you know, I listen to the to the Sunset record and, you know, I hear like drum machines and more kind of pop influence and some of the stuff that definitely, I think, broadens the, the boundaries of Americana or whatever, you know, box that that people might try to put artists in. Um, and I think that probably the, the greatest example of that is your work with the high women, which is, um, a collective, I don't know if you call it a collective or, or a band or, like or what you call a collective it, Collective,
2: but... because, cause anybody can be a high woman, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting because it's an opportunity for four different artist writers to come together who have very unique styles and then find a way to kind of put it all together and make it blend and make it sound like a cohesive. Um, and I'd love to hear a bit about how the songs came together for that record, how you guys selected the songs and how you approached the writing process, because, um, you know, other than cocktail in a song, which you wrote solo and I think is the only solo written song on the entire record. Most of those songs are collaborative efforts, some, you know, within the group itself and some, you know, outside collaborations. But it seems to, to me to be a bit of a different approach um, than what we're used to in terms of how you kind of presented songs before.
2: With, the, um, with this particular collection of songs, um, the first one that we, me and Brandy rewrote was uh, the Men song. And, um, it was kind of like I told Dave about this idea back in two thousand sixteen and and he he really liked the idea of this band, and I still had to like think about it for a while before I was ready to bring anybody in. It takes me a while to find words sometimes because I'm a, like a nonlinear thinker, and especially hmm. when it's something as as for that time at that time, to describe what you want to do without it sounding like you're taking the piss out of people you know but um Mm -hmm. trying to do something good without harming you know and um so anyway back to the writing so started we did that one and then brandy and i started writing together and then thinking on ideas of, of who would be a good who would be other good fits for the record and um for the group and then we made these lists and then we reached out to folks and you know everybody was into it and wanted to do it but oftentimes we ran into also the logistical problem of, of somebody's already touring or somebody's in the middle of making a record or somebody had a baby or whatever and I think by some kind of uh, uh divinity or divine intervention we, we um, managed to get the right people in the room that had this that had similar feelings to what we were feeling and um the goal the whole time was to not write sassy songs and to write songs that sang our experiences, you know, and then after that, it was the best song will win, you know, and then we recorded a few, few, quite a few more other songs that didn't make the record, but it had to make a a complete collection, like a body of work. And it had to, it had to be whatever songs we decided were the best ones were going to go on the record. And we had to just separate, rest of it you know like how much we were you you know in love with some other song or not like if it was way out of the the boundaries of of the collection like if it went too far in one direction and didn't fit or have a mate within the collection then it Mm. wouldn't work and um, Mm. that's how we did that
1: uh, there's a single called The Problem that you released uh, with Jason in 2020. You guys wrote it together and and performed it together, sang it together. Um, it's a song about the difficult decisions around pregnancy. And it, and it does what I think uh, music does so well when it tackles you know societal uh, conversations, is it takes something and turns it from an issue into a story. What do you want to do?
2: I'm scared to even say. This has been the hardest year Is it even legal here? Trying not to think of names Will you look at me the same? Do you need the reasons why? Is a
1: chrysalis a on such a charged issue
2: because i still felt a, a lot of feelings um from going through that myself you know and uh and then i know a lot of folks who have who have had that similar experiences and then experiences that were way different than mine and um the idea of of regressing and not having um access to having safe abortions is one of the scariest things in the whole wide world and um, just the the way that bodily autonomy has become or autonomy at all has really become such a uh, it's just that you can tell somebody else to do something with their body and be all pro-birth or whatever but that person's decision does not affect anybody else but that person it's just strange to me that that you know you can it just I just I just I still have problems with this whole thing it's like we're regressing and then we have that shit like in Texas and then like recently a couple of months ago I had a miscarriage and then I I had a ectopic pregnancy and in Texas during 10 days later they're trying to tell people to re-implant I mean that's not science. I've never heard, I mean, to do this, we need to do better. We need to teach kids and then folks to, to be able to teach folks what all these things are so that it's not like everybody's first thought is, oh, somebody's murdering a baby, because that is not what, not what is happening. Um, so anyway, uh, if I had had that problem like 10 days earlier, I would have a whole different ball of wax. Like I was internally bleeding for 18 hours. Um, and they had to take the whole fallopian tube out and that's fine. I lived, but, um, the idea of, of 12 women a day in a certain state dying, because, because something like that's seen as what it's not. It's so, it's so strange. Like you can't, you can't have a baby in your fallopian tube. Get it out.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, when you talk to songwriters, um, many of them write from personal experience. And as you just shared, there was a a spark of personal experience and experience from people that you've known uh, when it comes to, you know, to that song in particular. Does your writing in general tend to be um, fueled by your personal experience um, your personal viewpoint um, or do you sometimes kind of create characters and write in the way that say uh, a novelist or a short story writer would where they come up with a scenario and it's not necessarily autobiographical um, it's just something that they've kind of written and, and created apart from themselves
2: I for the most part do do confessional songwriting but I also I have like, like we talk about voices in my head, like my granddad's voice saying, if that story is not good, don't tell it. You got to either tell a good story and make it better (laughs) or don't tell it. So sometimes, you know, uh, (laughs) fiction is better than the actual true facts, especially if you're trying to um, really show something. But uh, for the most part, it's fueled by my own experience and those experiences of those closest to me around me and then I also do the other like I wrote a song this wonderful writer George Saunders has this book 10th of December and um, he wanted me to do one for that song or that story and uh, I, I did that and I chose to write in character and I love doing that too So I do that some But um, I tend to be selfish And try to explain the world to myself in songs And then hope there's somebody else out there That feels the same way I do
0: Yeah, and that song was uh, You Don't Get to Go, correct? Yes,
2: how did you know that?
0: I know a lot of stuff <laughs> Between you
2: and the kids I've been lifting and cleaning Feeding and bending for over 20 they might be standing here looking at the end of our world but there's beauty in knowing the closure you owe to your girls and you don't get to go out your own way you don't get to choose
0: Well, I want to uh, I want to bring it back to uh, the Christmas album. I know we're we're about at a time here, but um, you know, you you talk about writing, whether it be from personal experience or, or inspiration from literature or, or whatever. Uh, the last track on that record is called "Always Christmas Around Here," um, and you know, it's got these great you know kind of fun and very true lyrics uh, like a mess in the living room. There's wine all over the couch. My sisters aren't speaking. Who's crying now? Um, which probably sounds more like most people's uh, actual Christmas than uh, maybe the, you know, picture perfect Norman Rockwell version. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've said that that's one of your uh, favorite songs on the record and it is the the song that um, closes the album. So I thought it would be appropriate to close the uh, interview and, and with that Track and get some of your thoughts on on that song and and why that one is one of your favorites from the uh, record. That one's
2: my favorite because um, I think that would be John Pride's favorite. Um, I really was trying to 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 say something simple about how how folks when it's Mother's Day or Father's Day, it's always Mother's Day. It's and it's like it's Christmas. It's always Christmas. It um, but just apply it in the way not that we celebrate our mothers very well every, every day. Cause we don't, but um, uh, I just wanted it to be like actual Christmas every day in my mind. Cause it, it is, but in my mind, there's no tree in the living room. And, um, mm. the, and I also think, I think that that, that one's my favorite. Cause it would be John's favorite because it's um, it's simple and it's, and you feel like you're in the room, and he was always big on that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like it's true. Here at my house, lots of questionable tattoos, silent fights, holy fights, they vast backward views. We look forward to a new, a new set of days, hoping for change, maybe we'll winter. Seems to be true all the throughout the song. Like you know, we're not always desperate for somebody to to come back to them in a relationship, or we're not always thinking of 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 our uh, dead relatives, like in slow falling snow, or not always feeling romantic. But we are kind of always noticing that we have this set of things we have to get done every day, like get your washes, your dishes done. You know get some laundry done and pay your bills on time and oh no your plants dying because you don't know how to water it and um just <laughs> like the the you know always the family drama there's always that it's, it's that's why oh, yeah. it's my favorite it's just always feels true like we're always in my house not wanting to take the trash out and we're always just seeing who can push it down the furthest <laughs> <laughs> right. And we all have questionable
0: tattoos.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Like, mom, what the hell were you thinking getting that yin yang tattoo back in 1984? (laughs) (laughs) It is no longer circular.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, Well, the new album is For Christmas. I love uh, your description of some of these songs and that they feel true. I think we could say that about so many songs from throughout your career. There is a truth, there is an authenticity to them, which I think is what makes them resonate so Amanda, thank you for uh, taking some time to talk about your entire career and and process and and hit some of the highlights with us and especially want to encourage people to listen to For Christmas at this time of year. It's a very different and a very cool kind of holiday record. So thanks again for taking some time with us.
2: Hey, thank you. I appreciate the questions. That was fun. You never say that.
1: Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice.
0: If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do, and send them a link to our show letting them know how much you enjoy it.
1: As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can
0: follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show
1: on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.